Father, I do pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. I pray that uh, as a result of your word being read and proclaimed, that uh, we would grow more and more to be like Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen. The original biblical manuscripts were not written with chapter and verse divisions. So I couldn't have come up into the pulpit 2,000 years ago and said to you, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, because the verses and chapters had not yet been added. Um, The chapter and verse divisions were added later to the Bible for our convenience. A man named Stephen Langdon divided the Bible into chapters in the year... 1227 A.D. So, without chapter verse or chapters and verses, how would we know when an author is going to be changing the subject or is going to begin a new section? Well, different authors use different methods. Uh, The writer of Psalm 119 used the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, to to uh, alert us to the uh, different divisions. Other writers use different methods. Solomon seemed to enjoy uh, using clever literary devices. And so it's clear here in verse 16 in chapter 3 that he is introducing a new subject. I thought it might be fun... Uh, for you to find the literary device he uses in verse 16 to alert us that he's changing the subject. And I think it will also help us all to engage the text uh, right from the beginning of the sermon. So I'm going to give you a hint. Compare verse 16 with verse 1 here in chapter 3. So verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And then verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Any guesses? I know it's a little pressure-packed to answer. In verse 16, he uses the phrase, under the sun. In verse 1, he uses the phrase, under heaven. And remember that uh, that in, in uh, the first part of chapter 3, when he uses this phrase, under heaven, he's talking about a life lived within the presence of God and under His Lordship. But remember in chapters 1 and 2, when he talked about living life under the sun, he's talking about living life without recognition of God. And therefore, life leads to vanity and to frustration. So we read here in verse 16, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. And so we should expect that he's going to be talking about, well, this next passage that he's talking about is going to be kind of a downer. It's going to be kind of depressing. He's going to talk about frustration. He's going to talk about vanity. He's even going to talk about death. 
if he holds true to how he was speaking about life under the sun in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, he mentions everything, every matter under heaven, and he talks about the sovereignty of God. Uh, he talks about how God is the Lord of time, the, that God is the Lord of work, that God is even the Lord of pleasure. And so, uh, we saw the last couple of weeks as we looked at these first 15 verses about uh, how even our pleasure is a gift from God. Everything's a gift from God. But now he's turning to look at life apart from God. And so the, um, the passage is going to take a darker, more depressing turn. And so right on cue, that's exact, exactly how Solomon begins this section on life lived under the sun. So look with me at verse 16. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So what he's doing here is he's considering the strength and the vitality of justice in our sin-dominated, in our sin-broken world. His observation, basically, is that there is no justice. Rather, injustice is rampant and pervasive. If you consider life without God being in the equation. He speaks of verse 16 as the place of, of justice or the place of righteousness. What he means by these terms is the courthouse. The courthouse is the place of justice. Or the place where the laws are made, the legislature. That's the place of righteousness. And so, if in the place, in the courthouse, or in the place where the laws are written, if there is injustice even there, then at the heart of society, there is corruption. There's no injustice, or there's no justice. Where uh, anywhere. As human beings, we are hardwired for justice. On the preschool playground, or even on the Mother's Day Out playground where the children are even younger, you can hear the children playing, and you, you invariably will hear one child say to another, that's not fair. Even from the youngest age, and this sense of justice, this longing that justice be done, carries all the way through life. You know, when I'm sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, I typically want them to understand that God is a just God who cannot simply overlook their sins. So I'll use an illustration of someone breaking into our home and harming my family. In my illustration, the person's caught uh, by the police. They are locked up, they stand before the judge, and the judge looks at the man and he says, you look like a fine person. You don't have a violent past. I'm sure you're going to be a productive citizen in society. I'm going to let you off this one time. I'm going to give you a second chance. And then I ask the unbeliever that I'm speaking with, what do you think that I as a father and as a husband, and thinking about that judge. 
invariably they'll say, well, you're thinking that that judge is very unjust, that this is very unfair. I said, you are absolutely right. And you can even see them most times having an emotional reaction, having a, a, a sympathy towards me, even though it's just an illustration. Because this longing that justice be done is so hardwired into our system. They get it. They get it that God must be a just God. That He simply can't overlook a person's sins because otherwise God would not be God. God being unjust and still be God? No. Makes no sense. Or if I'm speaking to an agnostic or an atheist, I'll talk about the whole concept of justice. And my point being, if there is no God then there is no real concept of justice. And I know, because they are hardwired with a longing for justice, that, that the idea that there is no real justice is intolerable to them. I'll speak of um, Hitler or some other notorious criminal, criminal who has escaped justice. Uh, you know, Hitler was responsible for untold suffering, for pain that is indescribable, for murders, for not only um, millions of casualties on the battlefield, but multiple millions of uh, Jews um, that were and, and gypsies and, and others across Europe who were put into the ovens, uh, as well as the the um, civilians who were killed because of the awful war that he started. But he shot himself in the head. He escaped justice at the hands of man. He escaped the justice that the Russians were seeking and eager to bring upon him because of the brutal invasion of Russia by, the, by Germany. And then there are untold uh, others who have robbed, who have cheated, who have stolen, who have murdered, and they've lived a happy life. They were never caught. They lived a long life and died a peaceful death. If they're able to get away with it, then there is no real justice in the world. And... Uh, an agnostic or an, even an atheist. They understand this line of reasoning. You know, it's, it's not ultimately persuasive, but it's always effective to a degree. Because they, too, even though they would question or reject the existence of God, understand that there is a real need for justice in this world. People have an unstoppable longing for justice. You know, even the criminals who are out there committing heinous crimes, they too have a deep-seated sense of justice. You violate their rights, and they are screaming. But then Solomon comes along and he says, in spite of our hardwired longing for justice, the very institution." that are at the heart of our society, that are charged to ensure that justice is being done, 
He says these places are places of wickedness. Why is that? Well, because our institutions are simply a reflection of our society. In other words, even though we have a deep-seated longing for justice, we have an even deeper longing for our own selfish desires to be met. And we are unwilling to close, I'm sorry, we are willing to close our eyes to the cause of justice if it means that we can enhance our happiness or avoid some pain or sorrow in our life. What's wrong with lying about your age to get a discount on your dinner? (laughs) What's wrong with fudging your taxes as you are such a small fish that the IRS will never audit you. Solomon looks at the all-pervasive injustice in the world. He looks at man's inhumanity to man. He looks on how the powerful trample upon the rights and the dignity of the poor and the weak. And he's tempted to lose hope. But as he's pondering this in his heart, He says, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And this gives him hope. So look at verse 17. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. He's bouncing off of what he said in chapter 3. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant, a time to pluck up. And he says, There's also a time for justice. And so he says in his heart, there's going to be a time when God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And to to answer this injustice in our world, Solomon says, essentially, God has appointed a day of judgment. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, we can know that there is going to be a day of judgment for everyone. Because Jesus Christ came here to this earth. He died on the cross. And as Paul argues in Romans chapter um, chapter uh, 3, His sending Christ to the cross is so that He might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He sent Christ to the cross. Christ rose from the grave. And every human being will also rise from the grave one day to stand before God's judgment seat and receive what is due them for what they have done in the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Solomon essentially says the same thing at the end of, of Ecclesiastes. I think Paul's, um, paraphrasing Solomon 
as a matter of fact. And so Solomon says the last couple of verses in Ecclesiastes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Justice may seem non-existent at times. It may seem like the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer, Psalm 73. But God is faithful. The martyrs under the throne of God in the book of Revelation cried out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? True justice may seem slow. Habakkuk, the prophet, tells us. And some may seemingly escape justice in this life. But wait for it. It will surely come. David Gibson, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, said, God will retrieve every single injustice and every single time and every single activity Every single deed that has ever been broken by his holy, by, uh, broken of his holy law and tarnished his beautiful world and damaged his image bearers, every one of those moments will be answerable to God. You know the typical delay, uh, the typical response to God's delayed judgment is to ask, well, "Why not now?" You know, God, why are you waiting so long? Why does he allow injustice to continue? Well, Solomon answers that objection in verses 18 through 20. And so he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As the one dies... So dies the other. They, have, they all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go, down to one, or all go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust all return. So his answer is, why does God allow injustice to continue? Why doesn't God uh, uh, punish justice immediately? His answer, verse 18 God is testing us. Now, God's not trying to learn something new. He's not trying to learn something about us. Rather, the test here is for the purpose of us learning that our whole race is unjust. At the heart of who we are as human beings, even though we have a longing for justice, we're unjust. We seek ourselves first before we seek God. We seek ourselves first before we seek our neighbor's good. And then He wants us to learn that we'll all die one day. And then we'll have to face God, or we'll have to answer to God face to face. <laughs> it is not pleasant um, looking at life from Solomon's perspective of under the sun. I know Solomon's comparison of human, uh, humans to animals may seem confusing. 
in uh, verses 18 through 20. But remember, what he's doing here is he's using Hebrew poetry to write the book of Ecclesiastes. He's not speaking in flat theological terms. He's using imagery to make his point stick. He's saying that human beings die just like the animals. Look at verse 19. He says, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. In verse 20, when he says all go to one place, he's not speaking of the eternal destiny of their soul. Animals don't have a soul. Uh, He's saying our bodies return to dust. All are dust, and to dust all return. It's quite a powerful point he's making Uh, with this comparison between animals and human beings. You know, we sanitize the death of a human being. We memorialize the death of a human being. We have a service to reassure ourselves that the life of our recently uh, deceased loved one had that their life has a lasting significance. And this is important. I don't mean, I'm not downplaying memorializing uh, someone who has died. Uh, It's essential, I think, to the the healthy grieving process. But in all this, what we can end up doing is keeping our eyes closed to the inevitable cold, hard fact of our own death. You know, I live out in Dover. You know, I drive down uh, Durant Road to get home. I drive by or I drive over at least three road kills a day uh, coming to, to the church or, or going home. There's not a day that goes by that I don't see the buzzards, or what do you call them down here in, in Florida, the turkey buzzards, you know, uh, to- turkey vultures. Yeah, in, in Georgia we call them buzzards, circling, getting ready for dinner. Um, it's easy to close our eyes to the fact of our own death. But the pervasive death of all the animals around us should help remind us of our own mortality. I was talking to Betty Darden yesterday about the first funeral um, that I had gone to, and the only funeral that I had gone to before I was um, before I was 18 years old, before I'd become a Christian, really, um, of of a, of a loved one, of, of someone in our family, and. I remember I was six years old. I didn't want to be out at the graveside. I, I was afraid to even look at the graves. And so my, my aunt stayed with me uh, as they were burying my uh, grandmother uh, on my mom's side. And I, I remember being around the corner where I couldn't see, and she stayed with me and talked with me while they had the graveside service. And I, just the idea of death. I can't think of my whole, I can't remember my whole thought process. But it was a scary thing to me. And so, just like we close our eyes, I wanted to hide behind the corner and not see the process of my grandmother being buried. I think that's one of the advantages. This, this idea of the pervasive death of all the animals around us helps us, helps us to open our eyes, helps remind us of our own mortality. And I think that's one of the advantages of having a pet. Uh, They are very much a part of our family. 
they're probably going to die within 10 to 15 years of being born. I'll have the angry uh, reception line back at the, the door. <laughs> um, you know, but we'll have we'll have to face that in our own household in the in the next few years. You know, sweet Maxie. Last night, Maxie and I were playing, and she likes to to snarl her teeth at me and bark at me. If I just even shake the, a piece of paper like that, she likes to play. And we were playing a little bit too much, and I was running and chasing her, and she ran under a chair. And I went down to get her underneath the chair, and the, the corner of the chair <laughs> clocked me. I almost knocked myself out. And uh, I thought, you're going to die in three or four years. <laughs> No, I'm playing. I didn't think that. But we all have to face it personally. Whether it be in a few years or in a few decades, death looms. And so he's talking here about our physical bodies. He's not addressing our souls and our eternal destiny. Someone said to me yesterday, I guess we better plan our memorial service. We had a memorial service yesterday. And, and someone said to me, well, I guess I need to plan my own memorial service so you can know what to say at my funeral. And I said, well, that's a good idea. That's a healthy exercise. I haven't personally written down the plans for my funeral yet. Um, so here's what I want. <laughs> um, I want you to talk about Jesus. Uh, sing all six verses of hymn number six, 469, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place with Christ Within the Doors. Then I want you to toss my carcass into the grave. <laughs> um, it's time for me to conclude. <laughs> I'll mention verses 21 and 22 in conversation in conjunction with uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I will say this about verses 21 and 22. Solomon is not telling us uh, about eternity. Solomon in verses 21 and 22 is not telling us how to think about eternity or how to even live in light of eternity. What Solomon's doing is being snarky. He is the king of snark, in my opinion. He is being rude to those who take no thought of God or take no thought of their inevitable death. He's saying, in effect, in verses 21 and 22, if you think your life has any significance apart from God, you are sadly mistaken. All is vanity. What can we take away from this passage? Well, several quick things. First of all, our country is real wound up right now. Everybody wants justice for their cause. Whatever their cause is, they want justice and they want it yesterday. I look at the politicians that lie to us, cheat the system for their own benefit, expect us to cheer for them at their rallies, and then as a cherry on top, they, they ask us to donate to their re-election funds. That's the cause that stirs me up. And then they're going to get reelected, regardless of what they do or say. You know, there are news reports that several politicians up on Capitol uh, Hill up in Washington, D.C., take medicine for their dementia. 
and they're still in Congress and they are still planning to run for re-election and they're going to win. And I say, God, where's the justice in that? I'm sure you have areas of injustice that get you just as wound up. Everything and everyone, I declare to you, according to the Word of God, will have its day. Every person will have their day before the chief justice of the universe. Jesus Christ will make every injustice to be right. Nothing will go unaddressed. Secondly, as it relates to the inevitability of death, we have a Savior whose body was chunked into the grave. He went ahead of us in death that He might uh, prepare a place for us after death. He told his disciples on the night before he died on the cross, he said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Our Lord Jesus Christ went to the, to the cross. He went to the gro- grave. He rose from the grave. He ascended to sit at the Father's right hand. And he's coming back for his own. He rose bodily from the grave, not only to ensure that our souls could appear before God as just and holy, but also to guarantee our bodies will one day be raised from their graves in glory for all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. All others, the Bible says, their bodies will be raised. They will stand before God and then declared damned for eternity. Third lesson that we can take away from this is because Christ has secured your place in God's presence after your physical death, it is indeed healthy to think about the inevitability of death as you seek to live your life. Because as you do that, you're also thinking about your relationship with God. Yesterday afternoon, uh, I was thinking about this final application. Mandy and I went to uh, Lakeland to buy a pint of paint. A pint. <laughs> and uh, we went into this frou-frou shop. And I thought, oh boy. There was a, a popcorn store. That's all they sold was popcorn next door. I went in and bought the biggest pop, uh, bag of popcorn they had. I didn't look at the price. I just needed something to endure. And so... Uh, I bought the popcorn, and uh, I'm kind of walking around this little shop, and they had all these mirrors on the floor. And as I was uh, walking by one of these mirrors, eating my popcorn, minding my own business, I, I caught this image in the mirror, and it was an image of from me and my chest down, and I was wearing blue jeans. But I didn't see me in that mirror. What I saw was my dad. And it caught me off guard because immediately I I thought of myself as being older. I thought of myself as my life here on earth suddenly shorter. And I thought, what do I think about that? And I thought, I'm kind of comfortable with that. 
kind of comfortable with my gray hair. I'm kind of comfortable with the life that God has given me in the meantime. You know, one of the things I do is I work hard at self-improvement in terms of reading uh, the philosophy, reading theology, reading counseling books and things like that uh, so that I can grow. And But it occurred to me yesterday as I was thinking about this, there's not much growing that I'm going to do, be doing. I, I am who I am, whether I like it or not. And um, I'm fine with that as long as I'm faithful to God and as long as I can help other people be faithful to God. And I think that's one of the implications of what he is saying here in verses 16 through 22. Your trust in God can help you be content in your life and joyful in your mortality. Let's pray together. Father, as we have looked at this, Your Word, we ask that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit, that we would be able to say along with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. That we can be content with being brought low, or being um, well-fed or hungry, whatever circumstance. Help us to be content with the life You have given us as long as we can faithfully serve You. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.